Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. What is this thing called love? Um, does anyone know where that's from? Uh, Cole Porter. <laughs> 1929, what is this thing called love? This funny thing called love, just who can solve its mystery? Why should it make a fool of me? I saw you there one wonderful day. You took my heart and threw it away. That's why I asked the Lord in heaven above, what is this thing called love? So that's the question I was asking myself as uh, we come up to Valentine's Day tomorrow. And um, I know my wife's very keen to hear what I've got to say about this. Saint Valentine. I didn't know much about Saint Valentine, and I was wondering why has he got a day, and uh, why is it all about love? And so I did a little bit of research. Turns out uh, Saint Valentine was a Roman priest in about the third century called Valentinus in Latin, or Valentino, which is a bit more romantic in Italian. And um, because he was a Christian in those rather difficult times, the Romans were still being Romans, he was mostly under house arrest. And so he had quite a difficult life as a priest in Rome. And he was obviously being persecuted. But there was a judge called Asterius who was interested in in him and got to know him. And uh, he asked Valentino uh, if he could justify that Jesus was who he said he was. And he, he basically challenged him to say, well, prove it then. Now, the judge had a blind adopted daughter. And uh, so he said to, uh, the judge said to Valentino, if this Jesus can heal my daughter, I'll believe. And so Valentino prayed for the daughter, and apparently she was healed. Now, being so many years ago, this isn't in the Bible. This is, this is uh, history, folklore, if you like. But that's the story. And um, as a result of this healing, the judge said to uh, Valentino, so what must I do? What do I have to do now? And he said, okay, this is what you must do. You must fast for three days and pray. And at the end of the three days, you must be baptized as a believer. So he said, okay. So he fasted for three days. And then he became a believer, and 42 of his, um, his, in fact, his whole household, which was 42 members, were baptized altogether. But then a little bit later on, um, he fell foul of the Roman authorities again, and it was um, Emperor Claudius II who was in charge. And he quite liked Valentino, but he didn't like being challenged to become a Christian. And so he said to him, right, I want you to renounce your faith. And if you don't renounce your faith, you're going to be beaten to death. And that's what happened. And so on the February the 14th, 296 BC, Valentino was martyred. And um, he actually had been, uh, sorry, AD, <laughs> 296 AD. Yeah, thank you. That's, that was an important correction there. Um, but if we just have the first slide, we've got some pictures today. It's a special treat. That's, um, that's another portrayal of, of Valentino comforting the Christians in the Roman arena. It was quite difficult to be a Christian in those days. Um, did anyone find it difficult to get to church this morning? Well, that's what it was like then. 
a little bit uh, persecution. But a few hundred years later, they built a church in that place, which was another picture. Um, that's the uh, church of Santa Maria in Cosmodia in Italy, just outside Rome, actually. And um, church has become a bit more civilized by that time, uh, a bit more like today. So we don't expect to be thrown to lions today. It's good. So if ever you think it's hard, then um, uh, just think back to those times. And this, inside that church, uh, there is a relic which is reputed to be Valentino's skull, which you could go and see in that glass box, even today, if you want to. <laughs> I'm not planning to, but <laughs> you never know. So that's our... <coughs> That's our hero. Uh, why, is, why is he the patron, patron saint of love on Valentine's Day? Well, there's, there's another embellishment to the story, which we don't know if it's true or not. But um, our, when he was being martyred, the story goes that he sent a note to the blind daughter who'd been healed of the judge. And the note said, from your Valentino. And that's what we put on the cards, isn't it? So the whole, so the the whole idea of Valentine's Day comes from there, and um, yeah, we can put the skull away now. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it comes from the idea that there might be out there a secret admirer. All right, that's that's I think what the in essence Valentine's Day is all about. Uh, certainly today. That's a prominent theme, and so people are waiting for, to see, will I get a card from my secret admirer? Now, most of us probably are past that stage, and we're not waiting for a card, <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's still true, because in, um, I looked this up, apparently in America, this is a $20 billion industry, this day. That's just America, all right? It's massive, $20 billion of, of business associated with Valentine's Day. And so, it's an important question. You know, what, how, what's, it, what's the relevance to us? How, how should we do it? Uh, how should we view it? Um, what does God think? That's a good question. What does God think about Valentine's Day? Well, the first thing to say is that this whole thing about love uh, was God's idea in the first place. So, it, um, if you read the Bible, as I would encourage you to do, it starts in the first few pages. We, we read about Adam and Eve, the fact they came together and they had children. And, you know, the notion that God is somehow against sex, against romance, against relationship is completely foreign to the Bible. It's, um, it was God, uh, God's idea in the first place. So this love that we're talking about is not a bad thing. And so in that sense, Valentine's Day is not a bad thing. But um, what else can we say about it? Well, one of the things we can say is that although we think we know all about love, there's a lot of mystery involved. And it's a mysterious thing. Um, so when our daughter got married uh, a few years ago now, she, um, she wanted to go down the aisle to a song by Frank Sinatra which uh, is called How Little We Know, How Little It Matters. Um, I've got some of the words here. How much to, to discover, 
what chemical forces flow from lover to lover, how little we understand what touches off that tingle, that sudden explosion when two tingles intermingle. Who cares to define what chemistry this is? Who cares, with your lips on mine, how ignorant bliss is? So long as you kiss me and the world around us shatters, how little it matters, how little we know. Frank Sinatra, 1958. So there is mystery involved. If we, uh, and if we look at the Bible, we find the same thing. That's, that's popular culture. But if you look at the Bible, say we look in the book of Ephesians, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the next verse says this, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So the Bible says it's a mystery too. And I think we all agree there is a mystery about love. Why do people fall in love? It often leads to all sorts of consequences. Um, it often leads to a lot of trouble. And that's what a lot of the song's about. Let's look at another verse. Proverbs 30 and verse 18 says this. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, for which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of a sea, and the way of a man with a maid. There's a mystery about it. It's, um, it's something that's hard to define. You know, the, the uh, evolutionists would have us believe it's just a consequence of millions of accidental chemical reactions that have happened to bring us to where we are today. But I think most people would say, no, there's more to it than that. There's something else. There's this mystery. So romance is, was God, uh, God's idea, and it was, um, there's nothing to, uh, for us to be ashamed about that. The, the Bible does give us certain guidelines about it, but it's not something we should shun or avoid. Um, but there is another element to romance, and it's this. It's that romance often comes with risk. If you're going to get into a relationship, there's risk involved. Um, and... Uh, it's true, actually, of all, um, all aspects of love. I don't think any love comes without some risk. So we're talking about the human loves here. So the romance is the first one. Then there's friendship. You know, if, you, if you're going to be friends with someone, there's a risk it could go wrong. And then there's parenthood. You know, once you become a parent, there's enormous strong bonds of love between a parent and a child. But you're opening yourself up to all kinds of risk. And um, C.S. Lewis, famous for the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as many of you know, um, wrote this book called The Four Loves. And the, it's those three loves, so romance, friendship, and parenthood are the first three. And then there's another one which we'll come to. But he says this about it. He talks about there being, he says, there is no safe investment. And he's just been talking about himself, that in, it, when he's, Investing money, he's a bit cautious, and he's always very careful. He says, when you come to love, there's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or, co or coffin of your self selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, 
motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So there's a risk involved if we're going to love, but we don't really have a choice, do we? Can't live our whole lives without love. Um, so I want to just look uh, briefly at two stories this morning, um, two different characters in the Bible, um, and then there's one verse that we're going to look at right at the end. But um, normally when I'm preaching, I like to have a passage and we work through, but it's just one verse today. Right, so, uh, but I'm not telling you what it is yet. It's a mystery. <laughs> okay, so the first character is David, King David. Now, um, he was uh, quite a man. He, uh, he was very popular. He was handsome. He was, uh, as we know, he started off as a shepherd boy, and then he became king. But he was a musician. He wrote songs. He wrote poetry. So it's estimated that he wrote something like 4,000 songs in his life. And if you read the book of Psalms, nearly half of those were written by David. So he was a man of emotion, passion. He played a musical instrument. He was also a courageous warrior. He went out fighting. When he came back from the battles, the girls sang to him about the, the thousands of people that he'd, uh, he'd slain in the battles. He, he was just a popular guy. And he was also God's man for Israel the time. So God chose him to be king. And he just seemed a, the perfect guy. But then it all went wrong. He, um, he had at least um, he had at least seven wives. Um, which sounds a lot. Because he had them all at once. In, the, in those days it was okay, all right, just <laughs> to have more than one wife. That's one more than Henry VIII, by the way. <laughs> but at least he didn't Bumped them off one by one. <coughs> Some of them, he, got, he, he sort of went away. I think his first wife left him because uh, she he had quite a lot of concubines as well. But we won't go into the concubines, James. <laughs> that's, that's one of the, the questions you don't want your children to ask. <laughs> Dad, what's a concubine? <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes, he, he was obviously a passionate guy. He had a lot of emotion, uh, he had a lot of capacity to love, but then it went wrong. And we're going to just read from um, the passage in Second Samuel, uh, chapter 11. And it just says this, starts this chapter, in the spring, it's always in the spring, isn't it? Valentine's Day is in the spring. The birds and the bees start buzzing and singing. At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. And so this man of valor, this warrior, instead of going with the army as he normally would, he just stayed at home in his palace. And uh, that's how he got into trouble. So he was walking on his palace roof, which was probably the tallest building in the town in the evening. And he looked down to an adjacent property, and there was a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. It just happened to be bathing on the roof. Okay, so <laughs> as you do, yes. Anyway, being king, he said, 
go and get that woman for me. I need to get to know her. And just to cut a long story, there's five verses in the beginning of this chapter. There's five verses of shame for David. Because basically, he called her up, he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And her, her husband was with the army. So then David's got a problem because he's thinking, I've got this girl pregnant. How do I explain this? His husband, her husband's away. She's going to get into trouble. So his first thought was, get the husband back get them together, get him to sleep with his wife, and then it'll all be okay. So he tried that. Uh, her husband was called Uriah the Hittite, and he came back, but he didn't sleep with his wife. He said, I, how can I go to my house and eat and drink in my comfortable bed when the rest of the army are sleeping in tents? Wouldn't be right. So he was more honorable than the king. But that left David with a problem because he'd still got this woman pregnant, and he didn't want it to come out. So the next thing he tried is he tried to get him drunk. He gave him lots of wine to drink and said, now go home. He still didn't go home. So he resorted to serious measures. Most of you probably know this story. He said to the commander of the army, put Uriah in the front line and see what happens. And of course, he did that. Uriah was killed, and that was the end of him. And David took the woman, who was called Bathsheba, by the way, which I always find is amusing, because he first saw her in the bath. But it didn't mean that in their language. <laughs> it just happens to be in English that she's Bathsheba. <laughs> and um, I, can't, I always think of her as the lady from the bath. But anyway, he, he brought her, and he, she became his, uh, I think she became his seventh wife, and she bore him a son. Um, and he thought he got away with it. You know that um, little line that says, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, which I think was Sir Walter Scott. That's what happened to him. And he thought he'd done it, but then just read what it says at the end of the chapter, verse um, 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So we can hide things from, our, from the people around us. We can hide things from ourselves even, but we can't hide things from God because he sees everything. And so God wasn't pleased. But David is in denial. He doesn't, he doesn't think he's done, well, he doesn't admit that he's done anything wrong. And so what happens is God sends a prophet called Nathan in the next chapter. And Nathan has to go to David and convince him he's done the wrong thing. I wouldn't want that task, personally. But that's what Nathan had to do. And the way he did it was he told a story. And he told a story about a man who was very rich, and had someone come to visit him, and he wanted to kill a lamb to roast for the visitor. Uh, but he, instead of taking one of his own lambs, he went next door to a poor man's house and stole one of his lambs. And said, I'm going I'm to use this instead. Well, I don't need to use one of mine. I'll use one of this man's lambs. Um, and, and Nathan said to uh, the prophet, Nathan said to David, so 
what should be done? David's angry by this time. He's, he's getting really angry. He said, this is wrong. This is so unjust. This shouldn't happen. Why, you know, this man should be punished for what he's done. And then Nathan just says to David, you are the man. And the, the, the penny drops. He realizes that he's being judged. And he, he repents. And he says, yep, yeah, I've done wrong. In fact, you can read David's uh, prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. We won't do it now. But it's all about, God, please forgive me. I've been so wrong. It's a whole psalm of remorse for the terrible thing that he's done. And God forgives him. God forgives David because he's a man after God's heart. Says so that in another place in the Bible. But there are consequences. And the, the little boy who's been born becomes sick. And David then wants to... He, now he, he becomes a parent. He bec- the love of a father comes in. So he's had this, this passionate love for this woman, but now he's moved on to the love of a parent. And he wants this child to live. So he's desperately praying, God, please save this child. And he's fasting, he's praying, he's in sackcloth and ashes. And his servants around him, they're getting quite scared because they think if the child dies, he's going to be terrible. He's going to be so angry. And the child dies. But instead of being angry, when the child's died, he washes his face, dresses again, and he says, he basically accepts the situation. And the explanation of that is in um, 2 Samuel 12, 22. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And this is the interesting thing. He says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So he he anticipates that when he dies, he will be reunited with his son. And that's the hope. You don't often see that in the Old Testament, that hope. We see it a lot in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's not many times where we're given a glimpse that there's this reality after death. But here it is. David has it. He says, he can't come back to me, but I I will go to him. And that is his comfort in that situation. But the love of a, a parent is, uh, is a powerful love. Just as the love between a man and a woman is a powerful love. And the other story I wanted to, us to think about is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Because that's the same kind of love. That's parental love. And uh, Abraham... Uh, as you all know, is the father of the Jews. Uh, there's something like, I think there's something like 20 million Jews in the world today. Um, and there, were, there have always been a lot of Jewish people around the world ever since ancient days. And Abraham was their father. I mean, six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So that, you know, there must have been a lot at that time as well in other parts of the world. But so Abraham is the father, and again, as probably a lot of you know, his son was promised many years before he came. So God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. But it, the son didn't come. 
So year went by after year, and Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't seem to be able to have children. And Abraham tried to have a son uh, with his maid and succeeded, but that wasn't God's promise. And when he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90, God came again and said, I'm going to give you a son. This time next year, you will have a son. And the son came, called him Isaac. And uh, you think, that's great, wonderful fulfillment of the promise. That's the end of the story. But it wasn't. Because then God wanted to uh, test Abraham. And um, he wanted to demonstrate, I think, that there's a higher love even than parental love. There's something stronger than that. And he wanted to see if Abraham was up to it. And so we can read about this in Genesis chapter 22, the whole story. We won't read it all. It's too long. But let me just read the first two verses. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Can you imagine anything more horrific than hearing that? He's waited all this, these years for a son, and now God's saying, you've got to go and sacrifice him. So for him, it was a test between, how, will you love me, God, more than you love your son? And Abraham passed the test. Now, Moriah is where Jerusalem is now. And those mountains there, nobody knows quite where exactly it was, but it's in that region. But this was before Jerusalem. This is before the nation of Israel, even. This was just Abraham, before he'd had any children. And so, um, it sounds a terrible story, but actually, it has a very happy ending, as, as probably most of you know, because Abraham did as he was told. And he went with a party. I don't know what he said to his wife as he left home, but they had to travel three days' journey to get to Moriah. So he had some explanations to say to his wife where they were going. Um, but they went up the mountain. He had some wood, which he put on Isaac's back. And he had fire in his hand. They were going to make an offering. And he got right up to the top of the mountain. He built a little altar. And uh, Isaac's saying to him, Dad, you've got wood for the fire, you've got fire. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham just said, God will provide a lamb. And then he, puts him on, he ties him up, puts him on the wood, and he takes his knife. He's about to kill him. And an angel says to him, Abraham, don't do that. I think we might have it on the on the screen yeah. the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven Abraham Abraham here I am he replied do not lay a hand on the boy he said do not do anything to him now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your your son your only son it's a remarkable story and uh, it's whether you believe it's true or not I personally do, but whether you believe it's true or not, it's remarkable because this 
was written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, which is a thousand years from now. So it was about, um, we probably estimate it's about three and a half thousand years ago. And it was written within a few hundred years of that time. So it's written thousands of years ago. But it's a perfect illustration and description of what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus went up the same mountain with wood on his back and with a very different outcome. So when Jesus came in the time of the Romans, uh, they reckon that uh, where Jerusalem is now and the Mount of Olives and Golgotha or Calvary, which is the place that Jesus was crucified, is very near, if not the same place, as where that um, incident took place with Abraham. And, so, and there were so, there's so many parallels that Jesus couldn't have arranged. So there was a the place. Then there was the fact that there was wood involved. He had to carry, in fact, someone else carried it, but there was wood to be carried up. Not for a sacrifice of fire, but for a sacrifice of crucifixion. And this time there was no reprieve. No lamb caught in the thicket to be the alternative sacrifice. He was the alternative. So Jesus was the Lamb of God, as we, as we know, as he's described. And he actually had to go through it and be sacrificed. And so I just think it's remarkable that God put that story of Abraham and Isaac right at the beginning, first book of the Bible, thousands of years ago, to say, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you in advance, this is what's going to happen. And when it happens, you're going to know what it means. And so we come to our verse, I promised you. And you've probably heard it before. It's quite a well-known verse in the Bible. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible. And this is the first bit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's talking about that event. And it wasn't just a, a false alarm. You know, Jesus prayed, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But God said, no, you've got to go through with it. And then the second half of the verse says this, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So it turns out that um, there is a secret lover in the universe. And his name is Jesus. And that's the invitation to everyone. It's an invitation to the whole world. No one's excluded. It doesn't say, uh, God so loved the world except these countries or these kinds of people. It doesn't say, God so loved the world, well, the good people. Everyone. But the second half of the verse is, is conditional. Not everyone partakes in the second half. It's whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so there's an invitation. God won't send you a Valentine's card, sorry. But he has sent an invitation. And many, I know many of you have accepted that. And I would encourage all of us to do the same. And you can do it in the quiet of your own room, 
You can do it in your heart. You can do it in conversation with friends and family. But you must do it. Because we want to share in that eternal life that David and his son are expecting to share. And we can be there too. You get to meet David. You get to meet the son who died. And for any, you know, people often say, well, how can I believe in this God? There's so much suffering. What about all the children who've died? Personally, I believe God has mercy on children who weren't old enough to make a decision for themselves. And we're going to see them all there in the end. But the important thing is that we make the right decision. Most of us here are adults. And we need to accept the invitation from our secret admirer. I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the reality that uh, we have come to know. Thank you for your love, Lord, that you sent your son to die. And for those of us who have children, we know what that means in a small measure. We can only give thanks to you that that was your solution to the mess the world is in. We pray, I pray now with anyone who wants to pray this prayer, Lord, I want to accept your invitation to me to be part of your family and to accept the sacrifice that was made on my behalf that I might be saved from judgment and death. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.